Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live, and we're taking a few moments out of your podcast just to ask you to uh, think about um, making a donation to continue allowing us to produce Where We Live and uh, bring it to you every day. Uh, The number to donate is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. Think about the content that you hear on this station and specifically on this program, where each day we work hard to keep you connected to your community, to the issues that matter most to the people in your backyard. If that is something that you value, we hope you will support it today. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure, and it's so appreciated by us. one 800 or online at wnpr.org, and thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you an amateur birder? What places have you found to be the best places to observe birds? Coming up, we'll hear from the author of the Birding in Connecticut Guide. We'll also learn about an important tool local scientists and residents are working on to see which parts of our state should be protected to help bird species. It's called the Connecticut Bird Atlas Project. More about that in just a little bit. First, I want to welcome back to our studio Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist and Professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Welcome back to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks. And as our listeners have guessed, we're going to be talking about birds throughout the hour. You can join our conversation if you're a birder or if you have noticed interesting behavior of birds, whether in the winter or uh, now that uh, spring has uh, launched officially. You can join us, 860-275-7266. And you can find us on Facebook. You can also tweet us a picture of some birds that you have captured. Uh, Just find us uh, at where we live. Now, um, Margaret, you've been on our show several times. And I never asked you how you became the Connecticut State Ornithologist? Oh, that's a great question. Well, when I was hired um, at the University of Connecticut, before I arrived to actually take up the position, my department head uh, called me up and said, well, you know, I just want to ask, there's a, there's a tradition in the department and at the university that the person who teaches the ornithology class becomes the Connecticut State Ornithologist. And I'm just wondering if you're, if you're willing to take that on. So I did some background work, and it turns out that there's a 1913 statute, which is still on the books, that says that the person, of course, at the time it wouldn't have been a woman, mm. the person who teaches ornithology at what was then the Connecticut State Agricultural College, right, um, will serve without additional pay, and that was the important part, as the Connecticut State Ornithologist, and and the function of that was defined as um, advising the state legislature on matters of importance to the state that have to do with birds. And and as the state was, you know, largely agricultural in its economy at the time, that made a lot of sense. Birds are important in the sense that they control a lot of agricultural pests by eating them. They're sometimes agricultural pests themselves by eating crops. So I thought, sure. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Um, and you just get appointed. 
And so uh, you mentioned that with the statute, you know, informing policymakers, is that something that you're still doing uh, in this role? Do you feel like the General Assembly is is uh, taking cues from you and the birding community about <laughs> conservation? <laughs> well, I will say that um, every time there's another election, you know, to the extent that the State Environment Committee, for instance, turns over, I may or may not have interactions with them. The The frequency with which they actually sort of see legislature um, come through that is directly tied to birds um, varies. Mm. And um, I'm always available to the state legislature. Let's put it that way. (laughs) And available to us here on Where We Live as we talk about uh, birds uh, uh, this hour. Um, Did your love of birds begin as a child? No, no. Um, You will meet people that say, oh, I was obsessed with birds from the age of, say, five. And I was not that person. I was the person who was obsessed with books from the age of four or five and spent a lot of time outside reading under trees and eventually started to see birds. But I would, I'd actually traced my own like serious blooming of my interest in birds to a couple of events um, First of all, I got taken out to a field station at the American Museum of Natural Histories in, in the middle of Long Island Sound called Great Gull Island. It's a really a fantastic long-term research project on common and roseate terns that's still running. The summer after my high school, my last year in high school, someone took me out there for like a weekend to work there, and I stepped off the boat onto the dock. There are Twenty or 30,000 of these birds flying around screaming, pooping on everybody in sight. And I thought, well, this is awesome. <laughs> and immediately following that summer, I also um, started college at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven and immediately sort of ended up in the orbit of um, a professor there who sadly has has passed away. His name was Noble Proctor, who is famous in the state, just absolutely famous for being the most spectacular uh, teacher of young people, teaching people to get really excited about n- natural history in general and birds in particular. And through him got connected to a lot of people who are birders in the state. Frank Gallo, who's going to be on later, is a really good example of of that. And fast forward, so now you are a Connecticut State Ornithologist since uh, 1998, and you teach ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. So we're talking with you uh, this season of spring where uh, people are probably noticing a lot of activity uh, in their backyards. So so tell us a little bit more about uh, the types of birds that people uh, may be seeing this week or in the coming weeks as uh, some of the birds that have traveled south are coming back up. Well, let's see. Things that have been around all winter... um, have started to become more conspicuous to people. That's that's one thing that's happening right now. And that that so northern cardinals are a really good example of that. And people who feed birds see those all winter. Um, if you don't fee- see birds, you might not notice them so much. They'll be off in the woods foraging. Um, but they've gotten even more conspicuous than they are in the winter time because they've molted through into their best, most fancy, brightest red plumage. They're singing very loudly. They're moving around the yard, making themselves conspicuous. American robins are another example. This is the time of year where folks say to me, the robins are back. 
and I say, the robins have been here all winter. You just didn't notice them because they're not obvious in your yard. They, they're off in the woods foraging for fruit that tends to be easier to get at. This time of year, they switch over to insect food because they're getting ready to make eggs and they need the protein. So they're digging around in your lawn. They get obvious. Mm. Um, the things that are actually arriving back in the state that the birders are getting excited about, the warblers, you know, pine warblers, palm warblers are back. Um, Eastern Phoebe is back. Can you describe the Eastern Phoebe? Um, what does it look like? Oh, it's a small, um, mostly dark gray, black above bird that's you know paler on the belly. They tend to sit on fences or posts, sometimes the edges of roofs, and they'll sing. And people are often hearing chickadees at this time of year that, that have a song that sort of sounds like it should belong to a Phoebe. The chickadees will go, Phoebe, Phoebe. Phoebe. And that's not a Phoebe. A Phoebe sounds like it's saying its own name, but with a head cold. Phoebe. 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 And they're very distinctive because they pump their tails. Mm -hmm. They just pump their tail up and down, up and down. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned the warblers. People are getting, birders are getting excited when they see these birds. Why? Because they're, because of the way they look or just because of the change in season? I'm just curious about the excitement that uh, comes up. I think the excitement that comes up is that it's kind of many birders are, are birders because not only they, they love the birds themselves because the birds are beautiful and interesting, but because they have a strong collecting urge. And when the warblers come back, there's a period during migration when all of a sudden the num the birds that you can see on any given day, it's ticking upward and upward and upward and upward. And it's this little daily challenge of how many things can I see in the state that I haven't that I didn't see yesterday. So, so folks are excited to get out there and get their first of the year, you know, northern water thrush or first of the year hummingbird. Is it too early to see a hummingbird? It is not. Uh, they're not widespread yet. It's We're early days for hummingbirds, but the people who are really excited about hummingbirds who have started um, hanging out their hummingbird feeders specifically to sort of make it easier to, to see the, the first birds to arrive have started seeing them, especially down at the southern end of the state. There have been, I think, three reports in the last week. Mm -hmm. If you're a birder, we want to hear from you. The number 860-275-7266. Uh, my guest in studio, Dr. Margaret Rubega, who's the Connecticut State Ornithologist, also teaches ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. You can also tweet us at where we live if you have a question or if there's interesting bird behavior that you have observed uh, where you live. Uh, with spring, we know it's uh, breeding time. So can we talk, uh, Margaret, about um, some of the behaviors that people might see because it's breeding season? particular birds and what they're doing to find a mate? Sure, sure. So the thing that makes um, most birds most conspicuous to folks and, and uh, again, sort of makes some of the arrivers exciting to watch is the singing. Males are, you know, it's really not a lot different than when you, males are getting onto territory. They're, they're trying to attract mates they're trying to advertise to the males around them, this little patch right here, this is mine. And so essentially what people are seeing at this time of year is a bar scene kind of warming up <laughs> out there. The birds are sitting in their spots. 
they're moving around the yard to def- sort of define this is my spot and singing and singing and singing very, very loudly. And you'll see um, individual males at high points in your yard. And sometimes you'll see a couple of them, you know, come up to each other and, and sit a foot or so apart. And, and they're both singing and they're holding their wings out and they've got their feathers puffed up. And it's really not different than those two guys who you see in the bar and one of them kind of accidentally backs into one and they turn around and go, what are you doing? <laughs> and they're, they're sort of pretending that they're really going to get into a beef, but both of them are displaying to find out who, who actually needs to back down. It, there's a lot of that going on right now. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, how uh, well uh, a bird can see and how these colors uh, uh, make an impact uh, to the females who are looking for their mates? Oh, well, what one of the things I always tell my students about bird vision is that you look at the world and you think that you can imagine what it's like being a bird because you can see the colors on them and you can see the patterns, you know, in the places where they're moving around in. Birds see the world completely differently than we do. So uh, for starters, they can see in the UV range of light, which we cannot. And it's been shown over the last, you know, couple of decades that many, many birds, species of birds, have UV components to the colors in their plumage and their feathers that we can't see, but the birds around them can see. So they both look more brighter and in some cases actually have markings on them that we can't see at all. So they're looking at each other and th- and seeing things that we probably can't. And female birds who are looking at all these males who are all like dressed up and they're in their best feathers and they're very bright are in a lot of cases, kind of assessing whether that male is a good male to make babies with on the basis of how bright that male is. Um, partly because how bright he is is, a, is an indication of how healthy he is and how good a job he did eating certain foods, finding and collecting up the kind of food that helps make a bird bright. Mm. So what about the types of birds where there may not be much of a difference in how a male and female bird look? Why is that? Well, in that particular case, you, you get male and female birds looking different from one another when one of them is competing for the attention of the other one. If they don't have to compete, they don't have to be fancy. So in cases where you see a species of bird and the, the you know, cardinals are a pretty good example, the males are super bright and the females are kind of not. They're shaped pretty much the same as the males, but they really don't have equally fancy plumage. The males are taking a big risk by being so fancy, right? They're, they're way more conspicuous to predators that might come along and snatch them out of the air and eat them than the females are. And that's because in order to prove to the female, I, I am the best male here, one, one of the things that that bright plumage says is I, I can take risks and, and still, you know, make it here. Um, so in a case where you see males and females who look the same, there's, you're either looking at a case where they actually have to advertise to each other or you're looking at a case where the sexes are pretty evenly matched and males and females are sort of choosing each other in a way that doesn't set off this 
cascade of competition among males to look fancier and fancier. Mm. Uh, what about, you know, we might uh, make the assumption that it's, uh, you know, the males will sing and uh, the females will tend to the nest, but are there uh, types of bird species where you find uh, the male birds taking care of, of the babies? Oh, yes. They're some of my favorites. <laughs> about 1% of all birds in the world have a mating system that's called polyandry. And what that is is a case where females not only are the ones competing for males and the males are kind of duller looking, females will have multiple males if they can get them and the males will do all the work. So one example of this is a bird called a phalarope. There are three species of phalaropes and they they all have this mating system whereby females arrive on the breeding ground first. Females are super, super fancy. Um, And they'll sort of battle one another to gain access to the males. And then once a female has paired up with a male, he does the bulk of the work of building the nest. She'll lay four eggs in it, and then she walks away. (laughs) And he does it all after that. Um, It's it's a really interesting system to look at because it really says there is no sort of natural order in who does the bulk of child care, mm-hmm. you know, offspring care, who, who, who's going to be the fancier one. It just says that under the right conditions, you can get either set up. Dr. Margaret Rubega is in studio with me here on Where We Live, a Connecticut State Ornithologist who also is a professor at UConn. You can join our conversation at 860-275-7266. Colleen's calling from New Britain. Colleen, go ahead. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, Very interesting show. I live in New Britain, and uh, believe it or not, we have a pair of nesting ospreys on the top of a cable tower right behind Central. Uh, Connecticut State University, and they've come there for three years, and about three weeks ago, I saw them, and they were flying and soaring and all sorts of things, and their nest is uh, right at the top and everything, Um, but I'm not seeing them now, and I'm wondering, could they have gone away, or is it just because they're nesting, and, um, you know, I just, uh, I'd like to know. Well, it's really likely, first of all, that when you saw them, that the pair that you were paying attention to were actually engaging in courtship. They they were f- showing off for each other, which made them pretty conspicuous to you. So that's one one reason that you would have been seeing a whole lot of them. It's possible that it was a pair of birds who were, you know, working on pairing up as they passed through here to some location north of here, but it's also quite possible that the reason you're not seeing them now is that they've laid eggs um, and one of them is always sitting, hunkering down low on the nest, incubating eggs, and the other adult is making itself inconspicuous so as to not draw in the kind of predators that would that would tend to think, well, let's just climb up there and see if there's anything to eat. Well, today's show is all about the birds uh, with guest Dr. Margaret Rubega. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can join our conversation on where we live, 860-275-7266. After the break, we're going to hear how the birding community is working to track uh, bird species and how that data can inform conservation efforts in Connecticut. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live. Thanks for joining us today and listening to Where We Live, the podcast. It does take a lot of work, as Lydia and I both know, to put together a show like this with so many different voices and and coming to you be a part of supporting that. The number to call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. We are so happy to have you listening to this podcast. We found that oftentimes people don't even realize that it exists. They just think that we (laughs) broadcast between 9 and 10 a.m. and 7 and 8 p.m. But the reality is that you can go online and listen at any time of day at your convenience. It's there for you, and we hope that you'll support it as well. Again, that number, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. Go online to wnpr.org. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure, and thank you so much in advance. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn about the best spots to see birds that are migrating back to our region. Now, do you consider yourself a birder? What kinds of birds have you noticed in your backyard? You can post a picture on Twitter. Just find at Where We Live, and you can also join the conversation. Um, my guest today in studio, Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist, who teaches ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. And joining us now by phone is Dr. Min Huang, one of the leaders behind the Connecticut Bird Atlas. Uh, Dr. Huang, welcome to our show. Good morning. I understand you're also a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, uh, known as DEEP, So, and also one of the leaders of this Connecticut Bird Atlas I just mentioned. So tell us about this project and its goals, Mitt. Sure. Um, thank you very much. Um, this is a wonderful project. Uh, I'm one of four of a project team that's been thinking about this for several years, and we finally got it off the ground. Um, it's a multifaceted project. Um, one of the one of the things that we're trying to to do is to replicate um, the first breeding bird atlas, which was done back in the early 1980s in our state. So it's been 30 something years since we've actually looked at the distribution of breeding birds in our state. Um, so that's one that's one facet of this project. The other facet um, of the project is to look at, as Margaret, I guess, has been talking this morning about migrating birds and. What habitats are really important and critical for migrating birds in our state? And then also wintering um, bird assemblages as well. So we're looking at basically not just breeding birds, but what habitats and what assemblages of birds are present in our state throughout the course mm-hmm. of the year. Uh, what does it look like today, Min, in terms of the bird populations? Uh, are they fluctuating? Are there bird species that are in danger? Uh, we certainly have a number of species that uh, are listed um, as threatened or endangered um, or special concern in our state. And you know, after one year of, of uh, data collection, it's you know still to be determined you know what the entire scope of, of this project will be. However, um, unfortunately, um, we are confirming it seems so far some of some of the uh, some of the things that. I think most of the conservation community has has understood over the last couple of decades that we do have several species, a number of species that are uh, declining uh, in our state. And most of that, unfortunately, is likely due to habitat loss um, across the landscape. So when you talk about habitat loss, uh, give us some examples of, of what you mean and maybe a couple of these species that are threatened, Min. Sure. Um, well, one one particular habitat type that uh, is 
seemingly very lacking on our landscape in Connecticut is early successional habitat, shrublands. Um, you know, these are habitats that basically are the start of a forest succession. So um, they need to be maintained over time through active management. And about 80% of our shrubland birds, um, such as brown thrashers, eastern toadies, um, blue-winged warblers, are declining. And we are, through at least the first year of our data collection, we have two more years to go, we're seeing uh, a marked a market decline in at least the distribution of those of those birds um, from the first birding atlas uh, back in the, in the early 1980s. Mm. And another example of a habitat loss that people might not see, you know, as so apparent is just the fragmentation of our forest. Um, we have a lot of species that require large tracts of undisturbed um, forest. And unfortunately, we are seeing over the last 20 to 30 years a lot of development um, that is creeping in to these large contiguous blocks of forest that you might not notice um, in passing, but it's, it's having an effect on, on those birds. Mm. Uh, Dr. Min Huang, again, one of the leaders behind the Connecticut Bird Atlas. Uh, Min, what can uh, listeners do to get involved uh, with this project? And as you mentioned, habitat loss, uh, what can listeners do uh, to help influence, um, you know, the policies in their towns? Uh, sure. So this, our Atlas project so far has got over 700 volunteer uh, birders who have signed up uh, to assist with our project. We are really, really pleased. Um, with the response we've had from the conservation community so far. Um, we have a website, it's uh, www.ccbirdatlas.org, and from that website, people who are wanting to assist and, and help with the project, and it doesn't matter your birding ability, um, we're asking anyone who's, who's interested to help um, can go to that website and sign up and uh, learn a lot more about the project. Um, you know, one of the biggest reasons for obviously doing this project is to try to collect the data to better inform conservation action, uh, whether it's locally or more broadly um, at the state or federal level. And so folks who are wanting to assist can participate, for instance, in their local conservation commissions and, you know, look to try to preserve and enhance habitat in their local um, areas. And then at a larger scale, um, one of the biggest things that we all face when we came to conservation community is a lack of dedicated funding to protect critical habitat um, and to enhance habitat that we already have. And that needs to occur at a larger scale at the legislature um, in our Dr. Min Huang, again, is uh, one of the leaders behind the Connecticut Bird Atlas. Thank you for uh, those websites. Uh, we'll make sure they're on our website at uh, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Min's also a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection and head of the Migratory Bird Program. Uh, we appreciate your time uh, telling us a bit about uh, the Bird Atlas, uh, Min. Thank you. Sure. Thank you.
Uh, with me in studio is Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist and Professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation about birds, about their behavior, also best places uh, to see uh, different types of birds throughout our state. We're going to take your calls uh, just after the break. Uh, the number to reach us, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, it's also the second week of our spring membership campaign. If you pre- Appreciate all the different conversations we have on this program, the great programming you hear on WNPR. We ask you to support it with a contribution. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. Thank you. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're focusing in on birds, especially with the change in season. My guest in studio, Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist, uh, UConn professor who teaches ecology and evolutionary biology. And you can join us too, especially if you're a birder, if you appreciate uh, watching the birds or noticing interesting behavior. I'll take some calls now. June from East Hampton. Uh, June, go ahead. June, are you there? Hello? Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm June. I'm from East Hampton, and I've only lived here for five years. I moved from uh, Indiana, but I get enough time where I get to hear so many birds in this state. It's so wonderful. And I started mimicking them, and it seems like they answer me. Is that possible? Sure. Absolutely. (laughs) That is possible. And... um, Depend. How good are you, June? Well, it's pretty easy with the blackbirds or crows. I don't know what you call them, but those are real easy to cause. Right. But um, the birds, like in the spring, like like you said, they're making so much music. Yeah. Um, I have no whistle ability, <laughs> but it seems like <laughs> it seems like even if I just whisper it and you know have the same pitch and the same. Uh, sequence that they do, it seems like they answer me, but is that possible? Yes, it absolutely is possible. So birders not infrequently will try to draw particular species of birds a little closer to where they can see them by imitating the sounds they make, because what that does is it suggests to a male who's on territory that there is another male of his same species in his territory. And so those birds who are coming up close to you really sort of have in mind coming out to, if you don't get out of their patch, they're going to kick your butt. (laughs) Uh, June, you mentioned the crow, but could you give us an example of another uh, bird sound that you make that you've heard repeated back to you? Well, see, I I can barely see them at all, but I mostly just hear them. So there's been at least four or five at least different uh, sounds that I've repeated, and they just seem to call back to me. And um, I see maybe from a distance treetop. I, I've got a little bit of visual difficulty, but um, I can see them, you know, flicker in the in the trees. <laughs> so it, it's just uh, I was so surprised because my, uh, like I said, my my whistle is practically zero. <laughs> well, not all birds whistle, so so that's not not too surprising. <laughs> well, June, thank you uh, for your call. Uh, I also want to take uh, Isis in Stanford. Isis, go ahead. Hi. Good, uh, good morning. Um, so I have a uh, bird feeder that I put out on my fourth floor balcony, um, which is not as high as it sounds. And I wanted to, you know, get into uh, building, and there's so many birds because I live over here by the water. 
and um, by, you know, a lot of trees. And so I started attracting, like, some really pretty um, cardinals and other birds that I'm not sure what they were, but um, some really pretty birds started coming to my bird feeder. And about a weekend, um, crows, or whatever they are, the blackbirds, and they just ransacked my balcony um, and scared all the pretty birds away. And I haven't been able to get rid of them. So I ended up taking the bird feeder back in. I'll put it back out and same issue. So how do I keep these huge blackbirds off my balcony and continue to attract the pretty birds that I want to get to know? Well, all right, Isis, thank you. Let, so let's let's just first of all, let's try and make sure we've got the the right kind of bird that we're trying to prevent. Um, when you say these big blackbirds, how how big are we talking about? As big as your hand? As big as your arm? Oh, she. Uh, oh, Isis, Isis, Isis go ahead. Uh, uh, how big is the bird? Uh, Margaret wanted to know. So I would say um, probably bigger than my hand. Um, but they're they're pitch black, and they come in they come in a set. So it's it's probably like, you know, five of them. Mm-hmm. Um, shiny or not so shiny? They're kind of shiny. Starlings? They they could be starlings. Do they do they have Have you noticed anything about the color of their beak? Also black. Black. Yeah. Yeah. Black. Um, do the tails look really long to you relative yeah. to the bird? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that's actually. It could be starlings, but I think it's very likely that what you have is grackles. Um, okay. Grackles tend to migrate through, you know, in the way that you're talking about in big packs. Mm-hmm. And they would visit a feeder. And mm-hmm. I think if you look closely, I mean, first of all, I would say, to my eye, a grackle is very pretty. They're shiny around the head. They're iridescent. Yeah. They're kind of fantastic. But they will move on eventually. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for your call. Can we give a shout out to the crows, though, Margaret? Because they're pretty cool, and I've I've understood that they are they live with their family for years. I'm just curious if you could tell yeah. a little bit about about them. I think crows do not get enough respect, for sure. Crows are first of all. Let me just say that I, in my own research, have never taken on crows because I have a fixed policy of never studying things smarter than myself. <laughs> crows are. Super, super smart. Um, and you can really see that in the way that they behave when they're together. They they do have really complicated social relationships and they tend to hang out in family groups and for long periods of time. Um, they've been shown in a bunch of experimental work to be able to actually um, make tools and figure out how to get food out of situations that they've never encountered before by solving problems. They're great birds. Uh, Rick's calling from South Windsor. Rick, go ahead. Hi. Yeah, I just personally, uh, I intensely dislike crackles uh, because they just, <laughs> they, they cost me a million dollars in bird fees. But anyway, uh, so my question was about owls. Um, I've been seeing a lot of pictures of owls on Facebook, and I guess there's a lot of them around. And I have woods on two sides of my house, and I know there's at least two pairs. Um, So my question is, how can I get a closer look at them, and do you have any tips for photographing them, or where and when is the best time to go look for them? Well... 
so owls, as you know, are nocturnal. So if you, you want to see them, you have to be out at night. <laughs> it is possible to find where an owl um, is during the daytime, but it's it's a fair bit of work and you have to be sort of a sensitive naturalist about it and spend a bunch of time looking for signs of the trees that they might be in by walking around and being a really careful observer about where you're seeing whitewash, where you're seeing poop under a tree. In addition to that, during the daytime, you can sometimes locate where an owl is by the behavior of other birds. So smaller birds, blue jays in particular, um, will tend to do what's called mobbing an owl. If they find one roosting in a tree, they will surround it and scream at it and try to drive it out of the tree to make it move out of their neighborhood so that they're not at risk of being eaten or having their kids eaten by it at night when they're more vulnerable. Um, at nighttime, going out and listening to where the owls are and then tracking down the sound and taking a pretty powerful flashlight with you will sometimes get you to where you're going. But at this time of year, you really want to be careful about um, approaching too close or disturbing birds who may be nesting. It it costs them a lot of energy if, if you're... Um, distracting them too much or or lighting them up and um, sort of chasing them around at this time of year. Now, uh, Dr. Margaret Rubega, again, is a Connecticut State Ornithologist here on Where We Live. Uh, a lot of residents um, saw barred owls over the winter and um, especially during the day, which you'd mentioned owls are uh, nocturnal. So can you give us an example or give us an ex explanation of why there were so many barred owls? And um, just curious if that uh, have they uh, moved on? Are people still able to see them around Connecticut? Well, owls, like most birds, are really dependent on the availability of food when they're when they're having kids when they're making new chicks they need a good food supply in order to have the energy available to make eggs and then they have to have lots of food to feed the chicks when they hatch out so in really really good years for things like mice you, know, you might remember two winters ago your house, if you have a mouse problem, right, you're having to trap a little more to keep the mice out of your kitchen. That's a great year for owls and hawks because they're catching those mice outside and feeding them to their chicks. So a couple of years ago, you know, the winters of 2017, 2016 seemed like, on the basis of work that's being done on the rodents in the state, seemed like there were quite a lot of mice around and the owls probably had a really good reproduction year. There were just a lot of owl babies. There's also, you know, there are a couple of different ideas about what might be going on now. There's no suggestion that all these dead owls are turning up because of a disease problem. It looks more likely that all those youngsters who are a little less experienced than adults who who maybe don't have established, <clears throat> excuse me, winter feeding territories, um, are really having to work very hard to try and get enough food. And if they don't have enough food, they can starve to death. But even if they don't, they're having to take risks and put themselves in situations that they might otherwise not to try and catch food. Mm -hmm. So a road is a place where if a rodent's crossing it, it's really exposed. 
that's low-hanging fruit for an owl. It's also a great place to get hit by a car. Mm. Uh, but now that spring is here, um, uh, more availability of food may not be seen, uh, some of these, these dead owls that people had seen during the winter. Well, we'll see. I mean, I would say that the number of dead owls people have been calling me up and saying, would you like this for research or teaching? <laughs> Those calls have dropped off a little bit. So um, it's partly that. It, it may also be that those who were not going to make it have not made it. And now we're down to those birds who survived. Um, and also the mice are awake and breeding as well. Mm -hmm. So so indeed, there's probably more food. Uh, before we end the show, we wanted to give our listeners some tips on the best places around the state to see uh, different types of birds. So joining us right now is Frank Gallo, author of the recent guide, Birding in Connecticut. Uh, Frank, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning. I'm sorry, we've, uh, we're pretty short on time, Frank. If you could just give our listeners a, a rundown of, of a few places for them to go uh, check out uh, these migrating birds and, our, and the birds that are here all year round. Sure. Um, East Rock Park uh, in New Haven and Edgewood Park in New Haven are pretty well known as, as migrant traps. Uh, basically, they're, they're a sea of green in an, you know, in an urban island. They're in a, uh, an island in an urban situation. So birds go there during migration um, because it's the only green space around. So East Rock Park, Edgewood Park, and New Haven are great. Uh, a lot of people live in those areas, and they're super birding there. Um, Mondo Pond in Milford. It's a tiny little park. Uh, it's a nice little mile walk around a, pond, a couple of ponds. Uh, has some terrific birds in spring. Um, Selix Woods in Darien is kind of a new park that uh, not a lot of people know about. Uh, it's right off the highway, um, very good for, for birds. Uh, farther to the, the other side, towards the, the east side, um, Hammonasset Beach State Park is good all year round. Uh, nearby, there's a place uh, called uh, Jared Elliott Preserve uh, in uh, Guilford. That's a small little park, uh, and the entrance road to that park and the park itself are both very good for migrants in the spring. Uh, inland, um, place like uh, Station 43 outside of Hartford is really good. Um, well, these are all uh, great uh, ideas for our listeners to check out birds. So again, uh, Frank Gallo, who's author of the recent guide, Birding in Connecticut. Thank you. We'll be sure to tweet out some of those uh, that you have mentioned uh, here on Where We Live. Also, um, we got a call from Bob in Hartford who said he's out birding right now. Great to hear, Bob. Go, Bob! And he mentions uh, Margaret Cedar Hill Cemetery and wanted to give a shout out, a good place uh, to see some birds. Uh, um, so we've got 30 seconds left, uh, Dr. Margaret Rubega. Um, we thank you for coming in today here on Where We Live, Connecticut State Ornithologist. Uh, and uh, for people who are interested in these citizen science projects, uh, the best place to go uh, to, to learn more information about them. The citizen science projects, um, I would recommend, again, um, right off the top, the ctbirdatlas.org um, is the online, the website for the Connecticut Bird Atlas, a statewide project to document where and how many birds there are in the state. Well, we thank you again for joining us, uh, Dr. Rubega. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. And I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's WNPR Spring Membership Campaign. If you appreciate shows like this, please support us. Here's the number to call.